Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, readers and writers, welcome to this episode number 336 of Charlotte's Podcast, Beyond 300. I'm here as usual with co-hosts Kara Archer and Hannah Rue, and we've got a great lineup for you today. Um, yeah, we start off with an author feature of Rachel Culler Croft and her novel Stone Cold Fox, um, which Publishers Weekly calls a clever tale of jealousy, revenge, deception, and betrayal, calling Croft a writer to watch. Pace Magazine also calls this a blast of perfectly wicked escapism. Ooh. And up next, we have a two-minute tip from Charlotte Litt. Paul Reale shares the biology of writing, part three, flow. Yeah, and then we're excited uh, with our blog post discussion today, our very own Hannah LaRue publicist and writer and uh you know mom <laughs> and everything else uh she's going to be talking about uh, pitch perfect crafting a meaningful book pitch i'm excited for that i'm going to be taking oh notes <laughs> <laughs> and then we're going to finish up today with our reading recommendations book pitches community and listener engagement and what's coming in the next episode but first what's up with the podcast books this month we're celebrating the release of book two in the right quote series titled learning to write yes we are we're super excited to share these quotes they're inspirational they're practical there's a lot of good advice in there um, we've pulled them from over 500 podcast interviews with hard-working award-winning and new york times best-selling authors in more than 33 u.s states and five countries yeah and this book reveals how writers really feel about learning to write um, if you want to learn more you can just go to our website charlottereaderspodcast.com uh, and click on the podcast books tab in the menu bar um, you can order this book online and in print wherever books are sold also don't forget that the first book in the right quote series um, which is called the writing life can be downloaded for free online it's the best deal you can find <laughs> so it's our gift to the writing universe and you can look for the link for that on the podcast books page of our website yeah, free is always a great way to sell books. You know, mm-hmm. it's free. And you can also pre order the upcoming books in the series now. Um, when you do, you really help support the podcast. Uh, as we said, we're releasing Learning to Write uh, this this uh, month. Uh, and we're releasing other books uh, on the first of every month uh, between now and October. Um, and we're just kind of taking it into progression. Book three is Writing Process and Tools. Book four, Storytelling, Inspiration, and Research. Book five, Writing Techniques and Characters, which I think is the thickest book because that's all the ways you put a book together. Uh, Book six is Writing Community, Revision and Editors. And book seven, uh, The Emotional Writing Journey, which I really enjoy. It's how writers really feel about, really feel about, really feel about writing. (laughs) Really, really, really feel. (laughs) And uh, Yeah, how they really feel. And then book eight, Publishing and Book Marketing, uh, which uh, is essential to uh, getting your book out into the world. Yeah, and uh, like I said, the first book, you can download the ebook for free. But if you want to receive all of the books for free, you can join our street team. Um, there's a link on the contact tab in the menu bar at uh, charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can join through there. And also on the podcast books page of the website, there's a link. All you have to do to get all of the books in the series for free is to agree to just leave your short, honest reviews online about the books. You know, just a few words about how you felt about the books, um, maybe something that you took away from them. They're not heavy reads, um, but they are full of weighty tips and reflections and lots of good material in there yes so many good things 
And don't forget that if you become a Patreon supporter of the show for as little as $5 a month, um, we will give you all the books for free before they release. And that's in addition to the 150 exclusive interviews that are not normally on the show. Um, you'll be able to access on our Patreon channel on the craft and business of writing. Yeah, we're really proud of this. Uh, put a lot of work into it to pull these books together. But it's really uh, the authors who are speaking uh, through these books. Uh, we're not telling you how to write uh we're just sharing all this great uh these great reflections and uh really the, these inspirational thoughts about uh, the writing process and, and the writing life so check it out uh we love you to be on our street team or be a patreon supporter or if you don't want to do either one of those you just want to buy the book and support the podcast that'd be great too We have an affiliation with Libro.fm because you can get audiobooks from them, and when you do, you support independent bookstores. If you'd like to sign up with them for your audiobooks, use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER and claim your free audiobook. Right, here we are with Act One uh, interview today. We've got uh, author Rachel Kohler-Croft. Uh, her book title is Stone Cold Fox. Uh, Sarah, tell us a little bit about Rachel. Sure. Rachel Kohler-Croft is an author and screenwriter in Los Angeles. Um, she scripted projects for Bloomhouse, Sony Pictures Entertainment, and Comedy Central, among others. Her most recent feature is called Torn Hearts. It's a female-driven horror film set in the world of country music, starring Katie Seagal. Um, it came out in 2022 to rave reviews and was given the highly sought certified fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which is pretty hard to get. Um, she lives by the beach with her husband, Charles, and their rescue pit bull, Juniper. Stone Cold Fox is her first novel, um, and she was really fun to talk to so I, I definitely enjoyed this interview good all right well Hannah tell us a little bit about the book after a lifetime of forced instruction in the art of swindling men by her mother B wants nothing more than to escape her shadow close the door on their sordid past and disappear safely into an old money domestic life style when B finds her final mark in the perfectly dull blue-blooded Colin she's ready to deploy all of her tricks one last time the challenge isn't getting the ring, but rather the approval of Colin's family and everyone else in the tax bracket, particularly her childhood best, his childhood best friend, Gail. Going toe-to-toe -to -toe with Gail isn't a threat to an expert like B, but what begins as an amusing cat-and-mouse game quickly develops into a dangerous chase. As the truth of B's past threatens to come roaring out, she finds herself racing against the clock to pass the finish line before everything is exposed. That sounds good. That's a good book pitch. And Kirkus Reviews, they gave it a star review. They call it uh, an absorbing story that plays with ideas of good and evil, keeping readers guessing who is the hero and who the villain. I like that. You don't know who's the I good guy too. and who's the bad guy. Mm -hmm. All right, well, let's listen in to uh, Sarah's interview uh, right now. Um, well, I'm super excited to be here today with Rachel Kohler-Croft, author of Stone Cold Fox. Rachel, thanks for joining us. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Sarah. I'm excited to be here. Um, well, I totally love this book, as I was just telling you before we started. Uh, B, the protagonist, is such a fun read, totally unique character. She has a, a really strong voice that just kind of jumps off the page. Um, can you tell us a bit about how you came up with B? Sure. B's voice came to me first before really anything else in the story. And I think it's because, I don't know, I'll cop to this. She's sort of, I would say the good parts of her, the ambitious parts of her, and maybe some of the snark. It's kind of inspired by three of my best girlfriends and myself and kind of how we talked to each other in our 20s and had certain goals and dreams about where we were going to end up. And I just sort of leaned into that. But really, 
put me in very heightened situations. So when starting to think about, cause I could have written like, like a one woman show as B, right? Cause she's just fun to write in her voice. However, I was like, what would be an interesting world to put this character in? And the 1% world just made the perfect sense to me because I feel like she would have a lot of fighting inner commentary that I could explore while putting her in situations that I wanted to see her get out of or progress because I don't think B is your average gold digger. She's not really a bimbo. She's really smart, really funny and really accomplished in her own right. So I wanted to see her um, meet her match in some ways, which is how I ultimately found myself with Gail as well to contend with. Because even though I have a lot of affection for B, um, if you're gonna write a good story, you have to create a lot of problems for your character. So I'm constantly thinking about how I could make B's life a little worse with every chapter. And I was excited to see how I could, how to help her figure out how to get out of a certain pickle or a certain situation. Yeah, and I think that she's kind of the perfect character to go through that world because she does face all these obstacles, but she is never daunted. Like that was one of the things that really stood out to me about her was uh, her confidence. I mean, she's just unflappably confident. She truly believes in herself, in her looks, her intelligence, her social skills, her career prospects. She kind of like walks that line between self-confidence and hubris almost in a way that you don't really see that often with female characters in particular, I think. Um, how did you approach writing just that kind of like unflappable confidence that she has? Sure. Well, I am drawn to characters like that. I think that's why when I'm watching a show or reading a book, I tend to be very drawn to whoever's considered the villain because they go for it, right? <laughs> like they take they're super active characters. They have a singular goal and they're going to go for it no matter what. And so I wanted to apply that to my protagonist. And, you know, listen, there's some people that are going to think B is a villain in some ways, but I just don't think she's as cut and dry as all of that. And I just like when a woman character in anything I'm watching um, is confident in herself. I mean, listen, I like books and movies where the main character is a mess and things are happening to her and she figures it out too. But I don't 100% relate to that. And I know a lot of my girlfriends don't either. We were just kind of the type of girls that like, when we were 16, we thought we had the whole world figured out. And then when we got into our 20s, we think we really had it figured out. Just like a confidence that we wanted to go for our dreams and go after it. And I wanted that ambition to extend to be because I think there aren't enough characters like that um, to root for. So, and then as far as making her, cause here's the thing, like confidence, sometimes people, sometimes people don't like an overly confident woman or a confident woman, right? So I knew if I made her very funny, <laughs> people would want to hang out with her regardless. So I really tried to hone in on that for her voice too, and just have a really sparkling sense of humor that kind of um, will pull in even a skeptical reader to be like, well, maybe I don't like her that much, but she is funny. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a great point. She's very funny. Um, she's very witty. And I loved kind of being in her head and seeing this world through her head. That was one of my favorite parts about reading this was the descriptions of the other people and the settings and stuff. She's a very sharp observer of people, I think. So I love the kind of details that, that she picked out or that you picked out to describe the people in this world. Um, and as you talked about, it's this kind of like 1%, very high society, very moneyed world. Um, how did you write that? Did you have to do research? Did you kind of pull from any real life inspirations when you were writing the settings and the characters who populate this world? 
I mean, some of these places I've been to, some of them I haven't. Um, I live in Los Angeles, so it's a different kind of circle sometimes you bump into, but I have <laughs> dated a man in the past that kind of ran in those circles and was from the East Coast and um, his mother was not very nice to me. So that was like a seed of inspiration, but Colin and his mother, those aren't those people, but that's just sort of where the initial um, seed of them came from. But I wanted B to approach it from kind of, it's an anthropological observation, right? Just noticing like she knows what these people are going to say and what they're going to do just based on her experiences thus far and kind of anticipating how to best respond. I mean, one of my favorite examples of this is like her backstory, right? She, you know, says she's from Duke and are from North Carolina and went to Duke because she knows they'll respect that, but they won't know a lot about it because they're all Ivy League people. And I just remember my ex-boyfriend and meeting any of his friends, literally all of them started their conversation about, oh, where did you go to school? And I'm like, we're like almost 30. What is the issue here? <laughs> like, I just, it was such a funny, like, it's just kind of a funny thing. So throwing stuff like that, and I just think kind of made the world a bit more vivid and kind of gave me some stuff to chew on. But I also didn't want to paint the 1% or whatever with one broad brush either, because I think you know, all people contain multitudes and there's a lot going on. And Colin Case, for example, is a big character in the book and he's not all bad. I think he's quite a well-meaning man. So I tried to make everyone as three-dimensional as possible. So if you were reading it, maybe someone reminded you of someone you met in your life, or I just wanted everyone to feel real people and not villainous um, to, the, to the max, except maybe for the mother character. She is kind of not redeemable in my opinion, but um, I think B learns a lot along the way, kind of infiltrating that world and seeing what's going on in there. Because I think we're all fascinated by it, right? It's like a fascination and also kind of being repulsed at the same time. It's like a push and pull. Because even for B, like, it's not really about the, the material stuff, right? I mean, she likes it, who doesn't? But that's not like her motivation. What the money represents to her is safety and security and feeling like she can finally relax, which she was never able to do growing up. Yeah, I think you really hit that mix well of um, like almost satirizing the people in the world in a way that's funny, but it's still keeping it real and making them real people with real motivations and emotions and relationships and um, getting at the family kind of heart of it, too. I think that mix comes across really well. Thanks. One of my favorite scenes is when B meets the cases for the first time at the brunch and they're all, I mean, everything they're talking about is very one percenty about like taking Mandarin immersion and all of these things, but they're still having like a weird dysfunctional family fight. And it's kind of funny to hear B's like observations while she's sitting there just kind of taking it all in. Cause I, you know, of course we all have a lot of differences, but a lot of us are, we have a lot of similarities oh, too. Yeah, so yeah. I hit that home too. <laughs> yeah, it had a little bit of like a succession feel to it in that sense, which I, I love. <laughs> that show for sure. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> um, and one of the things too, I, I guess, talking about TV and your background as a screenwriter, um, I know as a screenwriter, you kind of write characters more from the uh, like the third person perspective of the camera. And in this, you're very much in B's head and her voice and her perspective. I'm curious, had you written fiction prior to this? And what was it like getting so closely into her kind of first person point of view? Yeah, I've definitely written short stories and things of that nature, but this was my first novel. Um, it's totally different from screenwriting and for that reason in particular. And that's something I really enjoyed because even when I'm writing scripts, 
I want to spend more time in my characters' heads and kind of talk about what they're wearing, what they're listening to, and like really, but you, you just don't have the time. Like a screenplay is anywhere from 90 to 120 pages. It's a ton of white space. You just really have to get to the point. And of course you want it to be character driven, or at least I do, but it's very, very plot focused. I mean, you have to hit the next beat and go to the next thing and keep keep it pacey. But I do think that helped me um, with novel writing as well. I think I'm a better novelist because I was a screenwriter first and just kind of specifically for a thriller because I think I just have a good handle on pacing and story and making sure the reader stays engaged. But the part I loved the most about novel writing was just being able to stay in B's head the whole time because those are the things I can't really, I mean, I guess you can have a voice over here and there, but it can't be too much or that's, that's boring to watch, but it's fascinating to read. So I really loved being able to stay in her head and say all the things that she wanted to say, even though she wasn't saying them out loud, kind of feels like she's telling secrets to the reader, which I enjoyed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I totally get that feel. And you actually explored kind of multiple angles of her perspective, because most of the book is with adult B, but there are some chapters that go back to her childhood or her teenage years too, um, which the voice in those feels very different. And so I was interested to know when you were writing it, did you write this whole book kind of linearly the way that we see it laid out? Or were you sort of writing the adult parts and then writing writing all the childhood sections in a row? Or how did you balance that? Yeah, the childhood sections came a little bit later. Um, I would say I think I wrote the like the adult stuff first, because I had like a first draft where mother was sort of present, but not as big of a deal as she is now. And my agent gave me this really astute note that was like, you know, you wrote a, a novel about a complicated mother daughter relationship. And I was like, Oh, yeah, I guess I did. <laughs> so then when I went back to flesh out mother and kind of her effect she had on B in these more tangible ways. That's when I started weighing the option of doing some flashback chapters because, and this is just one of these things I'm like trained as a screenwriter, like flashbacks can be overused and it's always something I just never default to. But I was like, well, it's my book. I can flashback in her life if I want to. So I tried to pick moments. I did write them after, but once I knew exactly where she was going, I tried to mine for like, very like almost dreamlike ephemeral moments in her life. And I decided to write them in the present tense at the age that she is in each one. So I think in the first one, she's like six or seven years old. So she's like very innocent at this point and kind of knows what's going on with her mother, but not a hundred percent sure. And she's also loves her mother so much and is obsessed with her and her mother keeps her at arm's length. It's really, it, those were actually really sad chapters to write. I mean, the Dean chapter in particular is one that like, once I came up with the last line of that one, it was like such a gut punch because I was like, oh God, Dean, he was like one of my favorites. Um, but yeah, I did that kind of after the fact and decided where to place them in um, in the story of the book to make the most emotional impact because I wanted people to understand where B was coming from. And she wasn't just one of these femme fatale characters for the sake of being a femme fatale because she's hot and wants to raise some hell like she actually has. Um, a lot of motivation behind the type of person she is and how she sees the world, because I don't really think she had a chance to be anything else. But I think it's commendable and aspirational and cool, the type of woman B became. And I know that might be controversial, but I think she would never call herself a victim, even though she is. But I kind of like that about her because she's like, okay, I can take on anything. And I think that's where confidence comes from. She's like, I made it through that. I can do anything and be anybody I want to be. And this is who I'm going to be. And I'm going for it. Yeah, I think having that combination of the adult B and the child B shows you 
her strength, but then seeing kind of the vulnerability behind that makes her seem that much stronger. So I think that the the interplay there is really powerful. Thank you. Um, and you talked about the the mother daughter relationship, which obviously is a very central one here. And you had so many interesting kind of female relationship dynamics throughout the story. There's mothers and daughters, sisters, female friends, frenemies, <laughs> in-laws. Um, were there certain types of dynamics or uh, kind of nuances in the relationships that you were setting out to depict or maybe things that you don't see um, shown as often in the media in female relationships that you wanted to explore? I mean, just everything you just said, all of them, I, I find the relationships between women more inherently fascinating than the relationship between a woman and a man. And I say this as someone that's happily married. I love my husband. It's great. But I just feel like I like digging into how women interact with one another. And sisters have always fascinated me because I don't have a sister. So there is like a sprinkling of that in this book. Mother-daughter stuff, I think, is just wild. And I have a great relationship with my mother personally, but I think every woman, what I wanted people to not relate to is kind of the wrong word, because I think being mother's relationship is like on another level, obviously. But in, even in those moments in the past, the things her mother said to her, I feel like you might think of something. Oh, I remember when my mom said something like that to me when I was at a pivotal age. And the truth is your mother probably doesn't even remember saying that to you, but it's something that like sticks with you because mm-hmm. you just happen to be 11 years old when you just kind of remember those things. And then female friendships fascinate me too. And all this to say, it's because I think no one can um, break your heart like another woman, whether it's your friend or your mother or your mother-in-law. And at the same time, no one can lift you up as much too. It's just, I just find it all really fascinating and interesting. And that's absolutely what I wanted to explore through even some of the tertiary characters that I couldn't really spend that much time with, but I liked them. So when they pop in, I wanted to make sure they shined and had, you know, their own arcs and different things to offer the story. The, my two favorite kind of tertiary characters are Calliope Case and Ren Daly. Mm-hmm. I feel like they offer a lot of comic relief and kind of have their own stuff going on that really contributes to B's story. But I think people will see them as their own, you know, standalone character and that kind of fleshes out the world. Um, but yeah, I, all this, yeah, I find relationships between women endlessly fascinating yeah yeah and poor Ren she she was one of my one of my favorite characters to read <laughs> she was very funny <laughs> um but yeah I, I could totally see this playing out visually as I was reading it um and I, I'm excited now that you will have the chance to explore some of the the side characters maybe more because I think this was just announced yesterday as of when we're recording but this is now in development as a tv series um with universal tv and you're attached to write so congratulations that's huge that's awesome um so excited the long game I was like I'm gonna write a book and adapt it myself (laughs) seriously it's uh sometimes it might be easier to create the ip and sell the ip (laughs) Right. Yes, that was part of the grand plan. I mean, B came from somewhere. Mm-hmm. So I some of her, her tactics in that regard. Well, I mean, it's it's working and it's it's a great book that I think really could um, lend itself well to TV. And I know that uh, there might be limits on how much you can share, but can you tell us anything about sort of the process of getting this um, picked up? And particularly, I'm interested in... Um, since you're adapting it into sort of the open-ended format of a TV series as opposed to the close-ended story of a novel, um, anything that you're thinking as far as how you're going to do that creatively? Yeah, I mean, I think what I'm excited about is what we just touched on, that I can kind of give some more play to the other characters because 
so much of the book is B's interiority. And I hope to preserve some of that and like very careful voiceover and moments, but it's not just going to be in her head, right? So I am excited about seeing what Gail is up to when she's not physically around B. And the same thing for Colin's sisters, for example, like what are they? Like, I, I think it's going to become more of an ensemble and largely about the female characters. And that's not to say the men won't be important too. Like I'm personally excited to see if I can shake up things a little bit with a love triangle with Colin and Dave Bradford and B, because I think that could be really fun and juicy, for example. But as far as the process, um, the EVP of acquisitions at Universal got his hands on the galley and that happened, you know, in other places too. And people reach out and it becomes this whole wild thing where you have meetings with people and see who you creatively vibe with. And I just think um, Julie Pluck is an amazing writer, showrunner, producer, and she writes, and she also similar to me, like we're ambitious women. And I wanted to work with someone that has the same level of ambition as I do. And so I, you know, it's early days. You never really know what's going to happen <laughs> with um, TV and movies, but I feel really optimistic. I feel like we're all going to channel our inner bees and really go for it. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm super excited. I'm definitely going to be rooting for this to make it to the screen because I want to watch. So um, yeah. putting that out there. Uh, I did have a few more questions, but first I'd love to ask you to read us a little bit from the book. Do you have a passage that you can share with us? Sure. Don't think I don't have to build it up too much because it's pretty much in the beginning, but then you'll just get a taste of um, B's voice. So this she's here talking about dating Colin Case and kind of how she feels about him. I mostly enjoyed Colin Case's company as much as I could enjoy a man who believed that boat shoes and colorful polos under a quarter zip sweater were the height of men's weekend fashion. He adored listening to me talk and I had plenty of entertaining things to say. Whatever he said to me was typically bookended between lovely compliments about my appearance or my sparkling personality. I could get used to such a winning relationship dynamic, coupled with the constant extravagance of running around town with his drivers and helicopters and multiple homes. It was a no brainer to set my sights on marriage. Getting Colin Case to want to marry me would be simple given how smitten he was, but with his elevated stature in society, I knew he would not be the sole decision maker. Even so, I believe my forged identity would still fly with Colin in my crosshairs. I had conjured up a solid backstory for myself as Beatrice, but please call me B. A working woman in New York, the perfect balance of prestigious and plausible. I couldn't quite risk flaunting an Ivy League degree without considerable risk of being found out as a fraud, which was unfortunate as that type of connection would have all but sealed the deal. The case men were Harvard men along with his mother at Radcliffe but the family tree often branched out to Yale, Princeton, and Brown over the years. Never Cornell, please. And I knew that these people all ran in the same social circles, no matter the Institute of Higher Learning, and would, be, would begin to ask me very specific questions. What year did I graduate? Did I know so-and-so professor? What house did I live in? What family do I come from? And so on and so forth. Even if I copped to being on scholarship over legacy and embarrassment in their eyes, the due diligence would inevitably be done. It's who they were. We're talking about grown adults who still started conversations with strangers about where they went to school. So I had to play my cards accordingly. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it's so true. I think we've all met those kinds of people. <laughs> For you, you're like 45 and still talking about when you were 22. Yeah, yeah. But to be fair, <laughs> if I went to Harvard, I would probably bring it up whenever I could. So <laughs> I know, fair enough. But really, with strangers, it's like, get a life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
else have you been up to? <laughs> <laughs> um, I love that. So um, I wanted to talk a little bit more about your kind of writing career and your path. I, I noticed in the acknowledgments of this book, you talked about how you loved to read and write from when you were a kid and you would go to the library a lot. Can you tell us just a little bit about sort of your path to becoming a professional writer? Sure. I mean, I've always wanted to be a writer since I was a little girl. Even before I could read and write, I was talking into little tape recorders, telling stories. Like it was just always something that was, I don't remember a time where I wasn't telling stories. So it's kind of one of those things where like, yes, I had an interest and I'm not even a big woo-woo person, but I feel like I was sort of born with this like innate interest and like knowing I was going to hone that somehow down the line. And when I went to college, um, I majored in English, but there, I, there's a time when you're a kid and there's a time when you're an adult and you start to think about, you know, is this realistic? And I came from a family that is very encouraging, but you know, we're, we're working class. I didn't have any, um, examples about how to go about doing that. So shortly after college, I did move out to Los Angeles and I got a job at a very popular celebrity gossip blog, which I was excited at the time, but turned out definitely not to be my calling. And I actually, after about a year and a half, I moved back to Chicago where I'm from, kind of with my tail between my legs and feeling like LA wasn't for me because um, I kind of conflated the two, the job and the city. But it was a fortuitous detour because in Chicago, I got into sales, which I'm a competitive person. <laughs> I was working in a fun industry like travel and hospitality and what I learned later down the line as a screenwriter is that nobody tells screenwriters that like 80% of your job is sales. You have to go in the room and become a performer and sell your ideas. So by the time I moved back to LA with one of those companies, I was selling luxury floral arrangements to hotels and residential buildings and places that spend a ton of money on flowers. And I became the top salesperson and they wanted to open the market in Los Angeles. And Long story short, I popped around at a few sales jobs, but I had a really devastating breakup with that ex-boyfriend <laughs> and he was trying to be a writer. And I was like, I'm very motivated by spite. <laughs> I was like, well, if that guy can do it, I certainly can. So I sat down and I wrote my first script and I sold it a few months later. And I've been working pretty steadily ever since. I mean, I don't want to say it's like a rocket ship. I mean, screenwriting is very up and down, but you know, I got representation and I was pitching on things and I sold a TV show. Um, it didn't get paid, but I've, I've been selling things often. Um, but if, if you're not familiar with how that all works, uh, you can sell things and make your living as a screenwriter and have literally nothing ever produced. But I'm very lucky. I had my first movie produced last year. Um, it's a horror movie called Torn Hearts starring Katie Seagal, which is streaming on Amazon Prime right now. And it's a country music horror thriller. And I wrote all the lyrics to the original songs. It's a lot of fun. Um, but really, like right before the pandemic, I was getting a little frustrated that I was pitching on very lovely, very great books. Um, but that original ideas were not necessarily um, the interest from buyers. So I was like, well, I'm just going to have to sit down and write my own book. I've always wanted to do it. I know I can do it. Now is the time. So the first draft, I kind of did it lackadaisically because I was being paid for other things. And so I just sort of did it in my free time. And I got a first draft done within about a year. And then um, I was introduced to my literary agent through my TV and film representation. And she loved it and saw a lot of potential, but that it needed a lot of work. And she gave me wonderful notes and I dove back in. I mean, I almost hardly kept anything from the first draft, except for like B's 
spirit and like a couple different observations, but it was, I sometimes feel like I wrote two books to get to this one. Um, and I worked on it with her for about another year and then we went out to sell it and it was an exciting day because it went to auction and there were multiple offers and everything happened so fast, which I cannot really say happens um, as a screenwriter often. <laughs> it's usually a slow burn. So this was a really exciting turn of events. And I'm really happy I landed at Berkeley because I feel like my editor understood me. She understood B and what I was trying to do and did another draft with her. And then here we come to yesterday and the book is out in readers' hands. And I'm just so excited. And I love writing books. So my reps were like, we've had clients do this and they either love it or they're like, I'm never writing a book again. I want to write so many books. I really, really enjoy it. And then my hope is to adapt all of them and then ultimately direct them too. So I have a lot of big plans set in motion, um, but I'm really, really excited. You know, you only debut once and I'm glad, I'm glad it was B because I feel like she has a strong point of view and people are going to love the book or hate the book. And that's what I prefer rather than something that everyone's like, oh yeah, that was kind of nice. Like I would much rather get a reaction because I feel like it's better for book clubs or if you're reading something with your mom, you just have something to chew on and something to chat about. And that's really what I was going for with this book. Yeah, yeah. I think you want to provoke some kind of feeling in your readers, even if it's not always positive or happy. Like it's better to make them feel something strongly than to just be like, okay, that happened, you know. I think so too. And like, I, you know, I think a lot of authors say like, oh, you know, you want to find your ideal reader and my ideal readers are going to be drawn to be. And like, if someone doesn't like her, doesn't like my book, it's not really any of my business. I don't know what you guys are doing over there, but we're having fun over here. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I love that. Well, and, and I'm curious too, like, as a screenwriter, someone who has spent so much of your creative life in development, working on things that don't actually make it to viewers, and now you have a book that's published. It's like an actual physical product that readers can hold in their hands and read. And what's that been like, getting your words out to readers in that kind of direct way? Oh my God, it's amazing and so fun. I'm pretty active on my Instagram. So, and I'm like not, I'm like, if someone is like, oh, I loved your book, I'll like respond right away and say, it's like really cool to hear actual reactions. And while I had some of that when Torn Hearts came out as the writer, you know, typically with movies, so many people are involved and it's the public face of the movie is typically the director. So that was exciting and fun, but it didn't really necessarily feel like my moment in the sun, whereas like this book is so, it's so fun to just hear from people responding to my voice and and the book and be and wanting to know if there's a sequel and asking me questions about the ending, which I don't want to talk about too much. So I don't want to spoil anything, but I love hearing the guesses about the ending because I know what it is, but I don't think I want to share because <laughs> it's part of the fun. It's something to talk about. So no, it's been, it's been really fun um, and just very rewarding because even though I made it just sound like it was this snap your fingers quick thing, it's really not. I mean, you have to sit down and write the book. So it was, um, and it's fun that the, the end product is here. And this this is the fun part. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'm glad you're enjoying it. And I'm glad that you're getting that direct interaction with readers. I think that's so rewarding. Um, and I, I know I have to let you go soon. But before I do that, um, I wanted to ask, is there anything if you could go back and, and talk to your kind of younger self as a writer, any piece of advice that you, you would give yourself as a writer that you think would have helped you? What would you want to tell your younger self? Yeah. I think about this a lot and it's so silly, but I was, I was just like a boy crazy person from the time I was like six years old into college. And I wish I cared less about 
what boys were thinking about. Cause I feel like, I mean, I still cultivated my own interest, but I look back on some stuff and I'm like, did I really care that much about the movie Scarface in college or was I just trying to like get that guy to like me? I just feel like I was very focused on guys and I, I wish I could tell my younger self like, who cares? Look alive, focus on yourself. Cause you know, I get in my twenties and start focusing on what I want to do. And I met a wonderful man. So it all worked out. But I don't know. I just think I had funny little priorities then. And that would have been cool to see, especially like in high school. I mean, very much as a kid, I like explored all of my interests and I was very into like the secret garden and little women and things like that. But I think girls sometimes in high school get bogged down by things that don't matter. And I kind of wish I had been foraging my own path instead of going along with what was cool at that time. So that's something that comes to mind when you ask me that question. But, you know, you can't change things. It's just one of those things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that, that's great advice. But, you know, everything makes you who you are today. So um, it's all totally. Good. So no regrets. But it's one of those things. I'm like, hmm, I wonder what I would have gotten into had I not been wanting to go on a date with that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Great, great life advice, I think, for many of us. What's <laughs> about men? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it. Um, well, thank you so much for being here, and congratulations on the book and the series. And I'm so excited to see this on the screen and to see what you write next. Oh, thanks so much, Sarah. Thanks for having me. This was great. Thank you. If you are an author who would like to be featured on the show, check out our submission process on the contact page of charlottemeterspodcast.com. Please understand that given the number of submissions we receive, we can't respond to every submission or feature everyone who submits, but with the Beyond 300 format, we are featuring more authors in many different ways. You might be interviewed or provide us some audio content for us to play, or participate in an author or marketing talk, or get a shout out for your publication. One way to be sure to get a mention on the show is to submit a 750-word or less blog post to our community blog on a writing or marketing topic. If it's accepted, we may have you on to discuss the content. Just go to charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the community blog for details. All right, we're back with uh, our Act 2 writing topics with uh, Charlotte Litz tip and also the blog post uh, from Hannah LaRue. And uh, first, the tip, uh, Paul Reale as a tip on the biology of writing, part three in a series he's been doing this month. This one is about uh, the state of flow. Let's listen in now. Hi, I'm Paul Reale, co-founder of Charlotte Lit with a two-minute writing tip for Charlotte Readers Podcast. This is the last of three tips about what I call the biology of writing. A common piece of writing advice for the time challenged, that is for all of us, is to just fit it in wherever you can, even if you have only five minutes. The issue I have with this is, most people don't function creatively in that way. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, in several books and years of research, introduced the concept of flow. It's a state in which time seems not to exist when one is immersed completely in something for the sheer joy of it. This can happen, for example, during play or physical activity or creative production. Here are two key points. First, you're likely to do your best writing in a flow state. Second, it takes time to enter that state. Let us also note that flow is not required for writing success. It might even be rare that you can enter a true flow state, but the overall points remain valid. It can take time to get into any creative state and you'll be more productive if you can carve out blocks of uninterrupted time. 
The rest of this tip addresses the question, how can I remain uninterrupted? Here are three pieces of advice. First, do what you can to keep outside distractions away. Put your phone in another room or at least somewhere you can't see it. Turn off your email notifications and you may need to enlist help. Novelist Sarah Creech, a Charlotte Lit faculty member, enlists her husband and children to protect her daily power hour. When she's writing, they do not interrupt her. Second, try not to distract yourself. For instance, save web research for later. Make a note about what you just realized you need to look up and keep writing instead. Third, try a focus method such as the Pomodoro technique. Using a timer, and there are apps that make it easy, write for 25 minutes, rest for five, and repeat. When the timer is running, you sit and write no matter what. I don't know why the brain respects the timer, but it does. You might want longer time writing periods. It's up to you, but I assure you this works. You'll be surprised at how fast the time goes, how immersed you get in the flow of writing, and how productive you can be if you can just carve out some protected time. For more two-minute tips from Charlotte Litt, listen to Beyond 300 episodes of this podcast or visit charlottelitt.org slash tips. Yeah, I feel like, uh, thanks, Paul, for that. Uh, I feel like we're using the Pomodoro method a little bit when we record two or three episodes <laughs> together. We record, we take a break, we record, yeah. So we, we, we pet William, we go yeah. let Hannah's dogs out, Hannah's uh, goes and stretches his back, you know, all this kind of kind of stuff but yeah i think there's some value in that as long as your batteries don't run out in your little timer mm-hmm. you'd be good um well, let's talk about this second because flow state um you know is a little bit contrary to planning to some extent and uh but uh it's also kind of just making that space available i like the different techniques that are used here um power hour writing and you know not distracting yourself um how do you not distract yourself, Sarah? Um, well, I think it's it's interesting what you just said about like it the flow state being almost contrary to planning, but having to like plan for the flow and plan right, to make right. <laughs> make yourself amenable to the flow. I guess you could say it's kind of yeah. ironic, but it works. I mean, for me, like I I kind of do some of what Paul was talking about, like trying to set a sort of power hour for myself and making a space where I'm not going to be distracted. Um, and that's part of why, like if the weather's nice, I'll go outside and sit on the patio or something, because as you've seen, William will come and find me if I'm in the house <laughs> and, and need things. So sometimes and, I have to. Just, just a reminder for those who don't remember, we're not talking about uh, Sarah's husband. Right. About, <laughs> He'll also come and oh. find me, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have to remove myself <laughs> from where anyone can get to me. <laughs> easier to push husband out than it is to push William out. Yeah, yeah, sometimes. <laughs> so, um, yeah, just trying to, like, make a space where I'm not going to be distracted. I think also one thing that helps me is to kind of, before my writing session even starts, to plant the seeds that will allow me to get into that flow sooner. Like Paul was saying, like, if you only have five minutes at a time, sometimes that's only limited in terms of how helpful it can be because it can take you time to get into the flow of writing. But if I can, um, like when I finish one writing session, I like to sort of leave myself at a stopping place where I have an idea of what I'm going to start on next. And I'm, I'm kind of giving myself something to work on already so that my brain 
is kind of working on it in between sessions. And then when I sit down to write, it's easier to jump back in. Um, and also just trying to write consistently, like every day if you can, or at least as close to it as you can, it keeps the project fresh in your mind. So you don't have to spend as much time kind of warming up when you get back into it. Um, so I think that's helpful too, is to like get yourself kind of already primed to write even before you get there. Does this state of flow speak to you, Hannah, in any way? In, in my life, life now, again. Once again, it's like this whole series, I feel like is speaking to me totally different <laughs> now than it would have before. Um, but no, I think that's true. And and actually, you know, it's it's like my husband and I had to kind of come to an agreement where it's like I need to have some time on the weekends where I can work on my projects. And he kind of hangs out with Gwen and lets me just be in a quiet space because, um, you know, I've, I feel like actually Rachel Brooks, who was on our show, a writer who wrote um, her memoir, Beads, she I remember her. It's like you remember certain things people tell you and they just kind of stick with you. And she would tell me she's like, sometimes I just go sit in my car alone <laughs> And that's where I get some of my like <laughs> creative recharging done, um, which I, I remember that. And I'm like, I feel like I kind of do that now. It's like if I'm driving somewhere by myself or something, it's kind of where I get some, uh, I do a lot of voice notes now, I feel <laughs> feel like. And um, but yeah, I think I think carving out that time and having help to do that is really important. I like that, you know, Paul mentions that it's like having your your fam your partner or your kids, you like it's a power hour, like don't do not like bother me during this time it's just a little bit of time that I can have for myself and for my work and um I, I do think when you have that kind of uh idea in your brain where it's it's just it's kind of like you said the, the time the brain respects respects the timer um it kind of does it's like when you know you have limited time for something you're just like hyper focused and I think it is really valuable and it's something that we all should try to prioritize yeah, and I think that uh, when Jan and I move into this smaller place for the next 12 months while we're trying to get things together and move things around, we're going to have to schedule time in our office because uh, yeah. <laughs> two desks in one office, uh, you know. A little cramped. You need a uh, sign-up sheet for who gets the office. <laughs> That's a good idea. <laughs> I, I can remember when I, was, when I was a young associate, they didn't have any extra office. I mean, a young intern for a law firm before I started working. They put the clerks, you know, in the conference room at each end of the conference room table and you're just kind of looking at the end, <laughs> you're, you're yeah. all sharing one space. And after a while, it's interesting. After a while, it works fine. You sort of forget, you know, that the other people there kind of like if you're in a coffee shop, if you get into something, you might forget, you know, that there are people around you because you're so focused on what you're doing. But I like that time. Um, I think Hannah, you picked out Scott Fowler's quote about this, that time when you sit down You've got all this information, and it feels almost like mm -hmm. the tip-off of a basketball game. You're excited to jump into it, and if you have that information when you sit down to write, it almost doesn't matter where you do it because you can block out mm -hmm. a lot of things. You know, when you, at least it does for me. I don't know about for everybody, but if you jump into that space, and then it just kind of flows from there. So, uh, yeah, this if this, some of this stuff sounds woo-woo. If you're a writer, you understand what we're talking about. If if you're you know, only a reader, you know, just trust us. <laughs> it, it's there. It's, it, it happens, you know, things come to you that you least expect and uh, they find their way on the page, even though you didn't intend for it to be there. Um, and then you're like, wow, that's, that's yeah. kind of cool. Now let's, let's make it better. If you like what we're doing and would like to help us defray the cost of this podcast, please consider becoming one of our patrons through the Patreon website. For as little as $5 a month, say a coffee or a happy hour drink, you can help us out, and in return, we have a library of exclusive episodes, over 120, that you can access through the Patreon website. 
just go to patreon.com forward slash Charlotte Weir's podcast and join up. You can cancel any time, by the way, and we thank you in advance for whatever you decide to contribute. All right, uh, Paul, thanks again for that uh, post. Uh, we're going to shift now to our community uh, blog post, which today is uh, with uh, Hannah LaRue. Uh, you've, you've heard of her. She's <laughs> part of this uh, crew. Uh, she's got a blog post titled Pitch Perfect, Crafting a Meaningful Book Pitch. But before we jump into that, uh, Sarah and I are going to get a chance to just interview Hannah just a little bit. Uh, about uh, So Hannah's been on the show before, uh, before you were a host, Hannah. Mm-hmm. You were, came on, you did a special Patreon episode where we talked about marketing and you I think you came on another time and did some co-hosting and that kind of thing. And facts just seem to trickle out oh, on man. the podcast about you. We, I'm we're an open a book. This month, you know, <laughs> about, about you. If you will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you will. But uh, talk a little bit about um, how you got into this uh, mm-hmm. world of book uh, marketing and why you enjoy doing Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I feel like it's kind of been something, it makes sense that I am where I am now. I would have never really guessed, I guess, as I was growing up, but I was always a big reader, storyteller. I went to school for uh, film studies, actually. I was thinking I would be like a screenwriter, which is, you know, interesting. Now, listening to you talk, Sarah, it's super informative and cool, and I love it, but it just wasn't what I, like, when I got into the classes, I just, it wasn't really me. I feel like I was a little bit more, uh, Pansy, as we talk about on this show, if you know, it's just, I don't know. I was just, I like to talk and I like to communicate stories with my mouth, if that's surprising to any of you at all. <laughs> but I think, uh, so I, w- <laughs> I know, I can imagine. If you can imagine, um, I think I was a born word of mouth marketer. You know, I, I just love to hype people up, and that was always something uh, I knew about myself. And I, I feel like when I was in college, I started taking PR courses, and I really enjoyed them. Um, so when I left school, I was, uh, you know, interning and shadowing with Cindy Campbell, who a lot of the writers, uh, you guys have made, I know a lot of folks um, worked with her before I did. Um, she kind of showed me the ropes in terms of book marketing and publicity. And she was the perfect person to do it. She was like, you know, me, but like, amplified (laughs) if you can imagine that um she was she was amazing uh and so just getting to shadow her and see what she did we were kind of riding around in her car um you know visiting newspaper offices and all this kind of stuff and just popping in and being like hey when that was okay to do um and i just i really loved it and she actually passed away and um she had cancer and she had a conversation with me before she passed and she was just like i'd really like for you to kind of take on this work uh do you want me to start referring clients to you and I was like well first I'm honored thank you and second yes so that's kind of how I got into it it was a a very like beautiful and sad and just emotional journey for me but you know here I am well let me let me turn a question and then Sarah might have a question too on you like we do for the for some of our authors if if you could tell your not that you're old, Hannah, but if you could tell your younger marketing self uh, something of value that had you known it when you first started out might have helped you based on all the experience you got now in this uh, thing called book marketing. Uh, does anything I rise mean, to the top? a lot of things. I'm so much better at this job now than I was at the start. <laughs> so maybe like I would say, honestly, I would tell myself when I'm looking at me, don't be afraid to think big, I think. Um, I feel like I, in the beginning, I was always just like, 
well, I want to make sure I can, I wanted to get stuff for my clients that I knew I could get, I guess. I, I was like, well, I've met this person. I networked here. I did all this. And it's, I think I would just say to myself, like, you don't have to, because now I don't care. I act like I know everybody. So <laughs> fake it till you make it. Like, I just pretend you're my friend, even if I've never met you in my life. Um, and I think that is really crucial. And for authors who are doing it for themselves too, it's just like, think big you know expand your network it's don't be afraid to do that yeah danny roman powell who was on the podcast uh said you know you're never going to get um in the parish review right. unless you submit to the parish reviews so don't think small you know think uh think big mm -hmm. sir you got a question for Anna? yeah well first of all if if you ever want a second career i think you would be a great like oh, producer or development exec in <laughs> film and tv <laughs> because it is it's like pitching stories verbally that's that's the job oh, and you would be perfect at you. that um but actually so one question i have is one thing that is I think fun and exciting to me about the publishing world and the book marketing world, but also kind of stressful is that it evolves so quickly. Like self-publishing is changing everything. Social media changes constantly. I would imagine your job changes a lot, like from mm -hmm. year to year. How do you kind of stay on top of that and stay on top of how quickly things evolve in that? That's a great question. And I think authors who are, again, like doing their own marketing and that sort of thing, this will be valuable to you to just kind of think about that because I mean it is evolving all the time and I think uh, just with the rise of self-publishing it's becoming something that a lot of authors even um, if they've been traditionally published it's like if you rise in the ranks and you've expanded your network and you can kind of do that on your own you're going to see a lot more money coming through if you're self-publishing right um, versus going with a bigger publishing house it's it's kind of just like and that all depends and it varies. But I think uh, with that growth in that specific area, um, it's it's really a lot. And my job does change a lot, especially with digital advertising and that kind of thing. And the way I kind of stay on top of it is I talk going back to having that allotted time where you just specifically do one thing, whether it's research or writing or, you know, whatever it is. Um, every day I try to do at least 30 minutes of just like reading articles online about like the publishing world and book marketing. Um, I read a lot of BookBub. I think it has, is a really great resource as far as just like they're really on top of what's happening um, in the book world and that's really great so that um, I read a lot of uh, book reviews um, you know there's been authors in the New York Times in the past year or so that are self-published that have talked about their journeys so if I'm working with like an indie press uh, published author or self-published author it's like I feel like I I like to go I st it's like again another episode you know stealing someone else's work stealing a process that actually worked um, and I think reading a lot of backgrounds too on like authors who publish have published in different ways so I, I mean like I just mentioned or let's talk about you know Colleen Hoover for example self-published traditionally published um, she's really kind of cracked the marketing code of social media reading about what she did um, is a really valuable thing so it's like if you're an author you I kind of you know recommend like looking at authors who are similar to, to you and w seeing what they did that worked and all of that kind of thing and um, Google alerts. I, I have a Google alert up for just like publishing, you know, changes or publishing industry, self-publishing, stuff like that. So I like read through that a lot because it, it really does change. Every day it's different. Amazon's changing every day. Like the independent bookstore industry is changing mm -hmm. all the time. And, um, you know, and in that sense, just staying in the loop and talking with your local bookstore is always a really valuable thing for an author to do, I think. Yeah, that's great. Well, uh, 
We're going to play the blog uh, audio now on the blog post, Pitch Perfect, Crafting a Meaningful Book Pitch, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. A little caveat here. This is not the thing that you do in 30 seconds. Uh, you get a little more time when you're crafting your meaningful book pitch uh, than we're giving you here. Now, the 30-second elevator pitch is something you need to learn, too, but Hannah's sort of uh, pulling this out a little bit more, and uh, it, it's great stuff, so let's listen in. For many writers, developing an elevator pitch for their books is one of the most difficult aspects about self-promotion. The process of boiling a project down to a couple of quippy lines is kind of intimidating. However, it's something that every author should do. You may notice if you've landed a book event at an indie bookstore or solidified a feature article, the point person will ask for a brief description of you and your work. Keyword, brief. Most event venues, festivals, and media outlets don't want to and simply won't read a page or more long of synopsis of your book. The question is, when you put your heart and soul into something, how can you possibly summarize it in, in 50 to 100 words? As a publicist in the literary world, pitching authors' books is a massive part of my job. It's also one of the hardest parts. We want to make sure we highlight the plot and what readers can expect to take away from reading your book while being intentional with our words. Though difficult, crafting a creative and concise pitch will make it a lot easier to answer the question, so what do you write about? to anyone who asks. So let's talk about how we come up with a good pitch for your book. Step one, do what I like to call a complete word purge. Write a long pitch for your book and include all the details you want in it. Include context for the story, aka why should your readers care? Don't worry about making it pretty, just write. Step two, make a list of the takeaways you want your readers to have when they finish your book. Highlight the ones you think are most important. Step three, Go back and look at your word purge and takeaway list and edit. You're a writer, so you're no stranger to the editing process. Take out sentences that feel empty. Combine takeaways that are saying the same thing. Chances are you'll be looking at a much shorter description. Step four, include your accolades as a writer. Have you won awards? Are you a well-respected thought leader writing nonfiction? Adding re relevant accolades will help add weight to your pitch. Step five, add some personality to the pitch. We're sharing your story. We want a little piece of you in there. This will sell not only your book, but your author brand too. Some of my favorite book pitches that get the job done are from New York Times bestselling author Lisa Jewell comes a chilling thriller called The Night She Disappeared. On a beautiful summer night in a charming English suburb, a young woman and her boyfriend disappear after partying at the massive country estate of a new college friend. One year later, a writer moves into a cottage on the edge of the woods that bordered the same estate. Pulitzer Prize winner Richard Powers crafts thought-provoking novel, The Overstory, about nine Americans whose unique life experiences with trees bring them together to address the destruction of forests. Powers was inspired to write the work while teaching at Stanford University after he encountered a giant redwood tree for the first time. In her new novel, Hieroglyphics, award-winning writer Jill McCorkle beautifully traces the lives of four characters whose lives are shaped by, by horrific losses. It all begins with Lil and Frank, a married couple in their 80s, are each marked in childhood by the sudden death of a parent by violent accident. Something I like to tell my authors is that this should be a fun project. You're a storyteller, telling your story a story. The goal is to make the person or group you're pitching to want more. You don't have to give them everything they need to know right from the get-go. Your story is good. They will come back for more if you do it right. All right. Uh, well done, Hannah. I, I, I like, uh, I mean, this could be used, I guess. I, I'll take back what I said earlier for a 30-second pitch, but it also can be used to give that little bit extra that mm -hmm. uh, maybe a bookstore or a festival might need to know about it, particularly if you're going to include things like accolades and uh 
little personality, but um, I wanted to start with one thing first. You, see, you had a good point about uh, people don't have time to read a whole page. And one thing I would say is that with a lot of the pitches we get from uh, publicists for this uh, podcast, they're on one page, but it's not one mm -hmm. page of text. It's, it's almost how you design it sometimes too, right, Hannah? I mean, I think I want to follow up on that because there's Canva and there's other processes. That you, you can use a page, but if it's easy for the eye to jump from one little snippet to another little snippet, they might absorb information on a page and be willing to go there if it's interestingly placed on the yeah, page. Yeah, and Does I think like sense? the big thing too, and you'll notice just, yeah, again, the pictures that come through the show, but um, they're not really in attachments a lot of the time. So it's in a, the body of an email after a signature. Um, that's a lot of feedback that I've gotten from, you know, Media Alice. It's just like, I'm not going to open an attachment. <laughs> like in the initial pitch right so if you're doing promotions like you you're, you're gonna ask for the pr materials and all that kind of stuff but the pitch itself a lot of it's in that email body and yeah if it's broken up by like the book cover image or like a big review quote that's in bold and it's bigger at the top of the page and has a headline and that kind of stuff it's way more likely to get some response yeah that's a good point so don't just put it all in text you know have it i've noticed in those now, for us, you know, we want to have the attachment if we're going to have an author, so we always have to invite them to submit yeah. their media sheet that goes with it, so we'll have it. But initially, it comes to us in a form that uh, mm -hmm. is easy and quick to read because they've separated the paragraphs. They've used headings that are bolded or they've highlighted stuff, and so uh, it's real interesting. But uh, there's a lot of stuff on here, um, and I know, uh, Sarah, you've probably got some comments and questions about this too, so I'll, I'll flip it to you, and uh, we'll... we'll keep going yeah i mean there's so much good stuff in here and i feel like um the process of creating a book pitch can be sort of daunting for people and i like how you broke it down into actual yeah. steps that people can take <laughs> that makes it a lot easier um i love what you said about the word purge it's almost similar to when you're actually writing a book or something like people will talk about the vomit draft yes, is a phrase that, that i've heard used <laughs> where when you do your first draft like you're just getting it on the page you're just putting like all of your ideas out there you're not really trying to perfect it or hone it at that point just even if you're not sure about it, just put it there on the page and then you can go back through and refine and cut. And that's kind of like what you were talking about. Just get the thoughts out there and then you can go through and, and pick and choose and find what's really valuable. Um, I also really like the idea of kind of making it fun and bringing your personality in and the personality of the book in there too, um, because it's a sales tool. You know, you want to draw people in the same way that if you're writing a book, you want to hook people somehow from that first page. Like you want to give them something that's going to be um, interesting and that's also specific to who you are you are as a writer and the tone of the book too not just kind of a boilerplate like here's the facts of the story yeah I think that's why the, the one of the examples that I put in there the uh, Richard Powers one I really liked a lot because it kind of was like it was unique in the sense that it, it was very short but he's just it was just like this is He's an award-winning author, Pulitzer Prize winner. Um, this is what inspired him to write this book. This was his experience at Stanford, you know, stuff like that. Because I feel like for me, um, over the years, and I guess this is kind of tying back into what I would have told my younger self <laughs> too as a publicist, is just like focus more on the person um, because that's really what's going to sell what you do. Because if you're kind of able to back up what you write about with being a cool person or being a knowledgeable person, being someone who's authentically like writing what they want to write, um, that is going to really kind of sell your stuff a lot more than any hard sales pitch will. Yeah, well, in fairness, it's probably a lot easier for a publicist to market someone when they find out that their client is a Pulitzer Prize winning 
author, right? Yeah. That's true. Although, Landis, <laughs> listen, you're, you've been a finalist for many r- awards now. You're also, you know, Pulitzer yeah. Prize is up next for you, man. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, always aspire to aspire, right? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, um, but you also had a word in here, Hannah, that I think uh, gets overlooked sometimes in the uh, process. And you talk about this in your forward to book eight in the series, too, on publishing a bookmark, and that is fun make the project fun. I mean, you do, you write because hopefully it's fun for you and you're not just, it's not drudgery. Um, and marketing needs to be fun too. Or, I mean, I think that kind of the same things applies to writing as marketing. If you're not having fun, then the people that are listening to you talk about your book aren't going to be having much fun either. It's the same thing about if you're not mm-hmm. enjoying your writing, uh, maybe the reader's not going to enjoy reading you know, what you're writing. So step out there and have fun doing it. And, uh, you know, if you want to laugh as you're doing it, uh, hire Hannah as your publicist, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I feel like that's just like part of one of, it's, it's one of my languages is just like laughing. <laughs> yeah. but, I mean, I'm doing it right now. <laughs> but breaking it down, like you said, and Sarah's got a good point there is, is not just, you know, the word purge and, uh, but then looking at what you put on the page and doing takeaways. I noticed that I've done some of that recently, uh, when I've been asked to blur books, because once you have a podcast, people, and I'm happy to do it because uh, people blur my books. So, but as I do it, um, you're only going to do a couple of sentences, right? So how do you summarize the whole book in a couple of sentences? Well, you write down a lot of points. You, yeah. And then you go back and look at those, that whole page of things you've written down. And you say, okay, what on this page, you know, is really important and what fits together? So same kind of thing goes with working out this 30-second elevator pitch. You know, write down the things that come to mind for you, some of the accolades and, and like we had one a couple of weeks ago that, uh, you know, um, 499 <laughs> best deal in town, you know, so that, that's the fun, yeah, that's the fun part of it. Right. You know, adding something yeah. that's bringing your personality into it, you know, mm-hmm. when you do it. So exactly. uh, good stuff. Um, appreciate that. Uh, listeners, uh, if you have questions about uh, writing or, publishing or whatever or you'd like us to talk about something uh, use our feedback uh, tab on the uh, podcast uh, the contact page there and shoot us some information we'll uh, work it into an episode somehow all right we'll be right back with uh, act three in just a moment we have a newsletter called beyond 300 and we'd love to have you sign up this is where we share what's coming on the podcast provide helpful links and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts you can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts, leandiswade.com, saraharcherwrites.com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time. Here on Act 3 with our book recommendations and uh, what's coming next. Uh, so Sarah, what do you have this week? Uh, so this week I'm recommending um, Other People's Houses by Abby Waxman, which is a book I read several years ago. I've also read another book by her called uh, The Bookish Life of Nina Hill. Um, I really enjoy her writing. I mean, I, I want to go back and read the rest of her books at some point. And I, I would read anything that she writes because I just really love her prose. She's very funny and conversational and witty, but also descriptive and kind of lyrical at the same time. Um, a great writer. And uh, Other People's Houses, it takes place in the suburban neighborhood and it's kind of like about the secret dramas that are going on behind the scenes between the families mm. in this this neighborhood um it's very funny it's also touching and the characters i think our characters just feel very 
real. Like they feel like people you could know. Um, so I, I definitely recommend this book and just her writing in general. I think she's um, just a lot of fun to read, Abby Waxman. That's great. Uh, Hannah. That's another good title, mm-hmm. Other People's Houses. <laughs> 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 Always. Um, this week I'm recommending Love Like This by Cynthia Newberry Martin, and she was on an episode of the podcast too, I believe. Um, and that's you know how we originally connected, and I learned about her, which was awesome. And she's she is a really great writer. Um, this is a good book about uh, a long-term marriage who they just became empty nesters, no kids in the house or anything like that, and just kind of deep dives into what that does for your relationship and kind of leaves you in a place where you're like well what, what do I want to do now <laughs> so um they uh it's about Angelina and Will and when Angelina uh when they say goodbye to their kids and all that kind of stuff she decides to go back to work as a nurse and her husband quits his job they kind of like swap places a little bit um and it leaves a lot of time and just kind of space for them to figure out what they really want and if that's still each other and it's kind of just a very uh raw look at marriage I think um it was it was really good emotional read. It's something that makes you think a lot, and it was I really enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, that's great. I didn't I didn't realize she had a, a new book out that uh, Cynthia was on the mm-hmm. podcast. I, I believe the book was Title Flats, uh, and she's also a Davidson graduate. We actually did a live uh, interview together up at uh, Main Street Books in Davidson. That was a lot of fun, um, and uh, I'm glad that uh, she's got another book. She talked about uh, she likes to write about marriages. Um, her first mm-hmm. book involved uh, marriages because I think I recall her saying because, hey, you know, novels are about conflict, right? Where are you going to find more conflict uh, than in a marriage? Right, <laughs> right. And she actually has two books. This one comes out in April. So this is at the time that we're recording this is kind of early, but um, it'll be available by the time it comes out. And then she's another one coming out in June. So she's oh, she's wow. been busy. It's amazing. It <laughs> yeah, has been busy. All right. All right, well, I've got a, a children's book I'm recommending. Uh, it's called Hair Love by Matthew Cherry. Um, this book uh, has all kind of great images in it uh, about a dad who tries to fix his daughter's hair while his mother is away. Now, believe it or not, this book has been banned in some school districts. And Janet read it. I read it. Janet has read it to Simon several times. He loves the book. Uh, it is really unclear why this book has been banned. It is an African-American dad and his daughter. I mean, who knows? Anyway, it's a New York Times bestseller with more than 17,000 reviews on Amazon. And, you know, look, if Simon likes the book, you know, it's uh, probably a pretty good book. It's fun. It's got great uh, images. I want somebody to ban my book, you know, mm-hmm. so that uh, people will <laughs> go out there and read it God, and review yeah. it and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but I mean, it's, uh, it, it's, it's good. Uh, it, and it's worth, uh, if you've got a grandchild or child that uh, enjoys picture books, check it out. All right, let's see what uh, Mark West is offering this week. Hello, this is Mark West with the Storied Charlotte blog. My book recommendation today is a wonderful YA novel called Clover. Clover is written by a South Carolina writer named Dory Sanders. This semester, I'm teaching a graduate seminar on Southern children's literature, and Clover is one of the books that I'm covering in this seminar. Clover does a wonderful job of dealing with race relations, but it also deals a lot with food. 
the central character in this story, has a family who runs a peach stand near Rock Hill, South Carolina. And food and peaches figure very prominently in this story. I highly recommend it for anyone who's interested in Southern children's literature. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. I wonder if that's near the uh, water tower that looks like a peach. Oh, that I love that. <laughs> I-, I 85. Yeah. I mean, it kind of looks like a peach from one side. From the other side, I'm not sure what it looks like. But uh, <laughs> We used to have fun driving past that when I was a kid. <laughs> I yeah, see it. <laughs> it, 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 it's nice. Well, um, all right. Well, that's, uh, that's it for today. Let's, uh, Sarah, let us know what's coming next. Uh, yeah, next time we have a little bit of an unusual episode for you. It's a double feature where we focus solely on two interviews with two best-selling authors, C.J. Box and Rebecca Mackay. Uh, Publishers Weekly says that the suspense in C.J. Box's Stormwatch, which is his 23rd Joe Pickett novel, builds as the various storylines neatly intersect. Box is writing at the top of his game. Um, and then we have an interview with Rebecca Mackay. Her previous novel was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. Her latest book, I Have Some Questions For You, has been named a most anticipated book of 2023 by more than 30 outlets. Publishers Weekly calls it clever and deeply thoughtful, sure to be a hit. So we hope that you enjoy learning about these books and how these amazing writers do what they do. All right. Uh, looking forward to this uh, double feature. Uh, Hannah, take us out of here. All right, guys, just read on, ride on, and rock on. Mm-hmm. <laughs>